Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm joined today by Kareem Farah, who is the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. We're going to be talking about a lot of the work that he and team have been doing. Kareem, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks for having me, Mike. We always like to get to know our guests first by hearing their origin story. Uh, can you catch us up on how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, happy to. If we go all the way back to when I was in college, I was training to be an investment banker. I was a finance major and thought I was going to be in the world of Wall Street. Decided that was not particularly inspiring to me and pivoted and decided to become a math educator instead. And in mm. 2013, started my teaching career. I had my first teaching placement in Hawaii, actually. I taught in a small community called Waianae out in uh, Oahu, Hawaii where I learned how to teach and had my kind of first dive into what is, in my opinion, the hardest profession in the world. Um, spent my first three years teaching in Hawaii at that time, taught completely traditionally, which when I say that, I think it'll make more sense in a couple of minutes when I explain our modern classrooms model. But, you know, stood at the front of the room, delivered live lectures. My students worked at a fixed pace, you know, took some summative assessments, used the curriculum, all that good stuff. And, and knew at the time, like something was was really not working. And you were teaching math to what age range? Everything from ninth to 12th grade. Got it. High school. Time. Yeah, mm -hmm. high school. So yeah, I mean, you know, you teach traditionally and you're like, wait a minute, I'm not meeting students' needs. I'm asking students to like contort to my needs. And when you're teaching very high need student populations where chronic absenteeism, diversity of learning levels and social emotional needs are really wide, mm -hmm. um, that's particularly ineffective. It's very bizarre. And for anyone on the call that's a fan of the Truman Show, I often say that teaching traditionally feels like you're in the Truman Show. There's just a bizarre world that you're in that it feels like someone's got to know something better. There's got to be some sort of trick that we're all just like falling into line and something that doesn't work at scale. But the reality is it's not a trick. That's just what teaching and learning looks like still to this day in 2023. So I moved to D.C. in 2016. That's when I continued my teaching career at a large high school in DC public schools. I sort of reached my breaking point at that point where I was like, I cannot continue to teach using this really ineffective method. I am both not meeting my students' academic and social emotional needs, but I'm also burning out and frustrated because yeah. it's really hard to wake up in the morning and do something that you know you're not successful at day in and day out. And mm. I always say it wasn't like a principal telling me I was bad at my job. It was just like, intuitive. I have students in front of me and their needs aren't being met. Yeah. So in 2016, my co-founder and I designed the Modern Classrooms instructional approach. We kind of went on a mission to say there's got to be a better way to teach. And we're going to translate the buzzwords we keep hearing, personalized competency, blended, all that kind of stuff. You hear all the theory, but very rarely does it translate into action yeah. um, and decided to put into action in our classrooms. Models fairly straightforward. We call it evolutionary, not revolutionary in that you get rid of the live lecture at the beginning of class by building little videos. You, the teacher yourself, bid the videos. Not every lesson has to have a video, but it's a nice way to replace what you are delivering live. By doing that, the bottleneck that's forcing fixed-paced learning is removed. So students now can be self-paced within a unit of study. Hmm. And then the final frontier is that when you've introduced self-pacing, now what dictates when a student transitions to the next skill is not day of the week but actual competency and understanding of that skill. Yeah. So it's a blended self-based mastery-based model. Won a few awards in DC. People found out about the model, said, I guess what you do here is found a nonprofit. So found a nonprofit in 2018 and then fast forward to today. And uh, we've trained 
50,000 teachers through our free course, 10,000 teachers through our virtual mentorship program, and have a, a reasonably rapidly scaling nonprofit with a very simple mission, empower as many educators as possible with a modern classrooms approach. Yeah. There's some flipping of traditional models that's baked into what you're doing. And it's under the another buzzword that's out there is more student-centered learning mm -hmm. and really kind of letting go of maybe some of the more traditional command and control dynamics of a more traditional classroom. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I did find, you know, you were touching on it, like you're actually bringing stuff into practice that folks have talked about and a theoretical level in education for a long time. So can you put a little meat on the bone there and describe some of what you're doing to kind of flip the dynamics of the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things that need to happen simultaneously when we think about what most learning looks like now and what I think we would aspire learning to be. I think one thing is you got to get students to be in the driver's seat. And that just applies, doesn't matter how old the student is, right? When you're just talking at students and information's hitting people in the face, like, that's not how you learn. You learn by doing, and you also learn critical skills that are outside of the content by learning by doing, right? 21st century skills, self-direction, self-management, all the things that we need students to actually have when they transition out of high school, because as many folks know, there's this very abrupt transition that happens where you go from being, frankly, coddled in a system that like has all these conditions created for you to suddenly like, if you're going to college, you got 15 hours of class and that's about it. And then yeah. big student loans, or you go into the real world where it's like you either perform or you don't, and then you get fired. Mm. So, you know, you have to create a dynamic where students have greater ownership because giving students ownership is what's best for them actually building competency, but also strengthening those 21st century skills. And, and there's been a wave, by the way, in the student ownership movement that like sort of blurs the line between student ownership and students getting to choose what they learn like that's not what we do because the teachers that we train use whatever curriculum they're supposed to be using in their community we're talking about students taking ownership over the learning experience not over what they get to learn so we're mm. not advocating for like you're a fifth grader and, yeah. and you get to decide it's more it's more of a how than a what exactly the second half of this equation, though, is this idea that the most precious resource we have in K-12 education is teacher time. Mm. And if we're not using teacher time effectively, then we have created a really ineffective system. And teacher time is not used effectively when they're at the front of the room talking to students and the vast majority of students are not following along. But more importantly, the best use of teacher time is one-on-one -on -one and small group interactions. Mm -hmm. So the model is designed to do two things. You give students greater ownership of the learning experience by kind of designing a learning experience that is built to create that self-paced, mastery-based, blended experience. And by doing so, you unleash teacher time so that time can then be driven into what is the most important set of activities an educator can do, which is to meet with students in small groups and individually, build those relationships, but then actually have conversations about why they don't understand a skill and how to address it. Hmm. So... That's really like what we try to create. And the model is our thesis on the most efficient way to do that. Yeah. And what we say, because we're opt-in only, is like, you can opt into our model. If you want to opt into a different way to do this, by all means, we don't really know a ton about what the other ones are because we haven't heard about them being scaled very frequently. But it's in service of exactly what I just described, student mm -hmm. ownership and unleashing of teacher time. Yeah. The other thing that's out there nowadays, you know, trend spotting show talking about education is artificial intelligence. So we talk about that all the time. You're yeah. a technology connected initiative. Like there is this idea of blended learning and how you kind of integrate that. 
I would be curious how you see stuff playing forward because it does feel like some of the AI may liberate more of that teacher time and may ultimately really give some rocket fuel to a model like yours. I'd love to hear a little bit of your thinking on how this could play out. Absolutely. So, you know, pre-AI, I used to constantly present on this idea that blended learning doesn't need to be pretty. It needs to be personal, Mm. right? And that like a big mistake that you frequently see when ed tech makes too big of a dent in K-12 systems, or there's kind of like one size fits all solution to how technology is going to make a difference. The outcome is like students staring at screens, a deeply impersonal learning environment. And the educator, which has proven to be the most important factor in student learning outside of the student is like slowly being removed. Hmm. I think the same risks are here with AI. Hmm. So if you're in the camp of, oh, like you just get a little digital tutor and like students struggle with math or just now not going to struggle with math because the digital tutor is really good at identifying the misconceptions. I would be happy to debate you to the end of time that that is a really like probably tone deaf way of understanding the challenges that schools and systems face. So I don't think that AI is going to solve the fundamental challenge of like students not mastering content or student motivation. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that camp, I'm happy to debate you anyway. The camp I'm in is AI does something that I think we can all agree on. It makes certain things easier to do. And if it makes certain things easier to do, then there's a real possibility here that AI can be leveraged to simplify a teacher's experience Mm -hmm. to reduce some of the non-cognitively challenging work that an educator frequently has to do that consumes their time to ultimately make a model like ours or any teaching model easier to implement and to, again, unleash teacher time to focus on working with students individually in small groups. The question is how, and I think we sit at a very interesting spot because we're tool agnostic, tech tool agnostic. So we're kind of lurking at the moment. What I mean is like, we're looking around and we're going like, is there really going to be a high quality slide deck generator so that a teacher can put a standard and a set of skills in there and it produces a slide deck that they might be able to record a video on? Is there going to be a really good mastery check or competency check generator where you can input a curriculum and kind of it spits it out? We're not interested in designing that stuff. We're interested Mm. in helping bridge the gap between all these solutions that are being generated and which ones are actually going to make a teacher's time easier as opposed to you know, ed tech tool number 5,000 that hits a classroom and doesn't get used. Yeah. And then the psychological, emotional well-being of teachers and students is a real broader theme, broader trend that's been popping in particular over the last three years, really since the pandemic began. And it's not like teachers jobs have gotten tremendously easier over that span of time. How do you think about that? You know, the the whole child, I also like to talk about the whole teacher, not just their cognitive needs, but also their psychological and emotional well-being. How do you think about that? How do you account for that? I know that that's kind of baked into the problem space that you're looking at. Well, if I kind of go back to my teacher self before we ever built the model, I think every good teacher understands that if you can't build reasonably strong relationships with your students and create the space for which they feel safe psychologically in a classroom, you're unlikely to make any particularly great gains in the classroom. And that is, you know, that is of an accelerating importance, the higher need the student population is. So it's like a sort of non-negotiable component of the teaching experience. Hmm. 
The other thing that I think every great teacher would know is you can't really build relationships one to 25 at the front of the room. You can create class culture. Yeah. True. Right. I can create a vibe. But when it comes to, hey, this student has unique barriers that make it hard for them to access the learning experience. And I want to be able to ensure that that student feels supported and has the resources and time and everything they need. That can't happen from the front of the room. So when you just generally think about supporting students' needs, and particularly supporting the social emotional health of students, again, I think you need to distill the problem and, and make it fairly simple and say, the only way we're getting out of this and the only way we're creating the conditions for that to happen is if teachers can legitimately spend that one-on-one and small group time with students. So that's how we address that piece. Hmm. Once you're there, I mean, there's an endless number of strategies, whether it be trauma-informed practices, relationship building strategies. But what's so interesting is if you go to a training on those things and you ask the question, how do I do that whole group? They'll say, well, you can't. And then you go, well, then how do I meet with students one-on-one small groups? And we'll say, well, don't ask us about that. That's not what we do, right? So we're the player that bridges that gap. Separately, generally speaking, when students are academically not performing and their social emotional needs are spread wide, you're probably going to experience intense teacher burnout. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Like sometimes I don't think people draw that direct connection, but like, it's almost like you're probably going to lose your investors if you're not selling very well, right? You're probably going to have less of a joy for the profession when the outcomes for students are declining and their experience in the classroom is worse. But sometimes we think those things are like two mutually exclusive events, which is silly. Mm -hmm. So it is no surprise that teachers are burning out at scale. Students are incredibly emotionally dysregulated. And if you don't have a model like ours, that is the first thing that kills the spirit of a teacher. Mm -hmm. Walk into a classroom, you can't get students to engage, you can't support them. Your anxiety goes through the roof. You become exponentially more exhausted. You don't know what to do. You feel trapped and you want to leave. So what our model does is in many ways takes a learning environment and says, yes, you do have 30 students, but a group of these students don't actually need that much of your attention. They need a really well-designed learning experience and will self-advocate. That might be 10 students. It might be 15 students. Another group of students probably needs a couple touch points and they'll be all right every single class period. And then another group of students really needs your time a ton. Hmm. So that 30 person class where you feel like you're kind of delivering equal amount of energy, like one thirtieth of your time to each student suddenly becomes a much more data driven and organized experience that allows you to build those relationships. And what we've seen is when teachers can then feel successful, they start to say things like they find the job more sustainable. I feel more optimistic about the future of teaching. I have a clear vision for what learning is supposed to look like. And when you feel good about what you do, you're more likely to stay in the profession. Yeah. And some of the metrics that were shared with me look pretty good, where some of your key performance indicators are directly tied to job satisfaction, avoiding burnout, addressing some of those things head on. Oh, I mean... When people ask me what we do as an organization, we introduce a methodology of teaching that is both better for teachers and students, right? And I think frequently we forget the first part of that equation. Mm -hmm. Oh, we have a new curriculum. It's better for students. Oh, we have a new ed tech tool. It's better for students. But it's like, there's a key lever here that is in every single classroom, and that's the educator. And that's a key element. What's super interesting about that data, too, is the average educator who opts into our model has 14 years of classroom experience. Hmm. which frequently will surprise folks because generally when you're doing something that's tech forward, folks will make a very, very bad mistake of thinking that somehow that's for like the newer population of teachers. It's actually nonsense. Veteran teachers are incredible. And it's veteran teachers who are like, this doesn't work right now. And like, can you give me something different? So when you hear a veteran teacher go, I find this job more sustainable. 
it's a real testament to something really potentially working at the moment. And it does seem like maybe there's not enough attention paid to teachers. There's not enough, you know, organizational, intellectual firepower pointed in the direction of teachers. In some ways, you're a counterpoint to that. You're a program that's really designed to focus on that. Taking a step back from your program, more broadly, what can we do to provide more of that direct support, to provide more solutions for teachers who maybe are at that point of burnout and potentially leaving the profession? Well, I think that there's two things that need to be done immediately. One is people need to start listening to teachers like closely. And I understand that that can be challenging and there's a huge diversity and ability levels of the profession and who should we be paying attention to. It's not that hard to go to a great teacher. It's not that hard to identify a great teacher and say, what in the world is driving you nuts? And what are the ways that we can support you? Because what we frequently use is like exit interviews. And I think that that has a lot of susceptibility to weird like biases. If you go to a teacher right now who is passionate about the profession, you ask them what's challenging. We got to take those things seriously. What you're usually going to find out is that educators are saying that they're spread too thin, right? That they're responsible for far too many tasks and that those too many tasks leave them cognitively overwhelmed. So that's one thing. You're probably going to hear a lot about class sizes because that's real. I mean, the difference between teaching 10 students, 15 students, and 30 students is massive. And we sometimes almost look at it like a math equation. Oh, but 25 is only, you know, five more than 20. It's only a 25% increase. It's like, no, there's actually a lot of data that supports that there's a breaking point in which a class just becomes far too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. What you're also going to find is that frequently educators feel like they can't execute the task at hand, meaning their primary job function is to meet a high diversity of learning levels and social emotional needs, but we're not actually showing them a way to accomplish that. And I think the reason that's the case is because the market has really ignored pedagogy. Like contrary to what you would think is happening in K-12 education, we're innovating around pedagogy. We're not addressing pedagogy itself. Hmm. So we're doing things like introducing new curriculums and new tech tools and new school models. But we're not saying, have we optimized methodologies of teaching? So that broader kind of solution set is very untouched, which is very problematic because... That should be the core of what we focus on with educators. And then they use a curriculum or a set of ed tech tools to then go execute that optimized methodology of teaching. But we've sort of danced around the problem and ignored it. Yeah. The other big trend that we're seeing of late is around tutoring and bringing other resources in where, you know, also addressing teacher burnout. If it is too much for one person to address the needs of all 30 kids in a classroom, can you add some additional support who can do that small group one-on-one component. What are your thoughts on that? How does your project connect to some of those trends? So, I mean, more broadly, look, like if you can get more adults in the room and you can give them our one-on-one in a small group time, I'm going to say, go do it. Green light. This is great. I think one thing that's kind of special about what we do that makes that set of solutions actually easier to implement is frequently when you try to, like tomorrow you went, to school with your kid and you were like hey teacher i'm here to help the teacher would be like yeah thanks but like can you get out of here right because traditional frameworks of instruction are very rigid mm-hmm. there's actually not a natural way to infuse more adults i used to talk about this with teaching in a special education classroom where i was the lead teacher i had a co-teacher 
Yeah. And it was always this very awkward dynamic when I taught traditionally, because I'm like lecturing and then there's a adult back in the room who sometimes whisper in students' ears. It's just like weird exercise. And then when we created a modern classroom, a student-centered classroom, well, suddenly every new adult is another small group station. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you think about tutoring, when you think about s- supporting students with language barriers, when you think about supporting students with special needs, like suddenly a student centered model that infuses student ownership introduces the opportunity to really infuse a lot more adults into the learning experience. So that's how we support it. I am a little torn about the movement more generally. And the reason why I'm torn about it is anytime we introduce a solution that is fundamentally designed in part by saying we can't accomplish this in school, so we have to do it separate of school. Mm-hmm. It sort of feels like a Band-Aid on top of a Band-Aid on top of a Band-Aid. So while I think it's incredibly important to optimize and maximize the amount of one-on-one and small group interactions between the adults and students, particularly when there's you know competency issues, I think it's also important to not you know fix a leaky funnel by just adding a whole separate funnel and instead focus on whether or not there's a way to do that high impact tutoring within the four walls of a classroom within the school day mm-hmm. because ultimately if you spent time in high need communities it is not easy for students to be able to spend more time outside of school particularly as the students get older right so you're right. going to hit an equity issue no matter what mm-hmm. the students are going to be able to access out of school time for supports are frequently ones that have the time, may have the resources, may have the engaged parents or guardians. So if the solution to produce a high quality education system, students need to engage in learning outside of the normal class experience, we're always going to hit a wall on the amount of impact we can create. Yeah. And that ties to your previous point about listening to the teachers, where if it's disconnected and it isn't really integrated with what the teacher who's actually there all the time if it's not connected to what they're doing, there's going to be inefficiencies, disconnects, and inequities, to your point. I'm talking with Kareem Farah, who's the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. It's modernclassrooms.org if you're interested in what Kareem has going on. What about the future of work, Kareem? That's another buzzword that I like to drop a lot. It's a trend spotting show. It's something we think about a lot. The nature of work is changing. It's interesting to me that the nature of teaching perhaps hasn't really changed. So in some ways, you know, your exercise is an exploration into how teaching may evolve in the future and how there may be new visions, new models out there. But work is changing. How do you think that might impact K-12 education and some of the models that are out there today? I think it's hard to imagine a world where we don't want teachers to be in person teaching students. So I think that piece, I feel strongly that educators are some of the most impactful players in the world and they're best in person with students. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably going to remain the case and, and remain necessary. I think there's an obvious need to shift curriculum. Perhaps my most viral tweet I've ever had was when I said that Still to this day, we are purchasing TI-83 calculators and TI-84s, whatever the new generation is, for students across the country and the world. But I have yet to see in my lifetime a grown adult with a job take that thing out. So there's an obvious need to shift. I actually had a former student call me the other day and just answered the phone and started yelling at me because they had to pay their first round of taxes. And they were like, why did you teach me quadratics and you didn't teach me about taxes? And I'm like, (laughs) fair point, right? So I think there's curricular shifts that need to happen that are obvious. I think the teachers need to be in person, and I think that's not going to change. 
But I actually think probably the most interesting thing that we are not appreciating or taking seriously enough is that the way in which we as people, particularly adults, interact with our work is changing, but we're not actually expecting the same thing out of students. Mm -hmm. This comes up with engagement and disengagement. This comes up with attendance and truancy. Like we are expecting students to show up to class every single day. And then all of our efforts to combat that are to get them to come every single day. Meanwhile, the entire world of the workforce is suddenly becoming like a hybrid remote mixture. Mm-hmm. So we should expect students to have variable attendance. It's not the ideal scenario, but it's a reality. Mm-hmm. We keep fighting it like you're in trouble. Even parents are going to say sometimes like it's easier to just keep my student home today and I can have them catch up on these skills. Hmm. The second thing we need to be very cognizant of is like the idea that a human being sits and just like is 100% focused and like has no distractions for an extended period of time is ridiculous. Like, honestly, I think I spend the longest extended focus time in my life on a podcast because I can't pick up my phone because I'd look like a fool if I did. But like the reality is it doesn't matter if you're on meetings, if you're interacting with other people, like we are constantly disengaging, re-engaging, disengaging, re-engaging. But there's still a frequent exercise in K-12 education that someone walks into the room and the way they measure success is how many students are engaged at one time stamp. And what I frequently say is like the skill to learn now is not can you stay perfectly engaged for 60 minutes in a row? It's can you disengage and re-engage with enough self-regulation that you are still able to accomplish the tasks in front of you? Hmm. That is something that we naturally have pressure to do in the workplace. We are not not distracted. We are very distracted. Hmm. But the best employees, the best staff members, the best leaders are able to get distracted and refocus very quickly. Hmm. We are still holding students to a different set of expectations, which is why we get a lot of behavior issues and a lot of emotional dysregulation and a lot of like serious issues because students are going back, get off my back. Like this is so annoying and unpleasant. Like it's Mm -hmm. not how it works. So that's an interesting part of like the future of work and the skill sets that I think we need to teach students that we're not taking seriously enough. Yeah. I really like that. The level to which we're flipping mental models and code switching and just adjusting to context cues and just being expected to do that as working professionals. And then we're almost being trained not to do that as a student, where at the same time, a lot of the biggest insights and eureka moments I've had as a student is when a surprising connection is made between this idea and something else. That kind of brings me to the idea of relevance, which also comes up a lot. You were touching on it with your taxing example, Where, you know, one of the problems frequently in K-12 education nowadays, potentially higher ed as well, is just it's not really connected to my life. It's not connected to something that's meaningful to me. And I don't really see why it's important to me as an individual. I imagine you address this in a lot of different ways, but I'd love to hear some of your thinking about the relevance problem, which is a real one in our educational system. So we don't address it directly on content. And what I mean is like, look, if a student's registered in Algebra 2 and they have to find the vertex of a quadratic, we're not going to say you don't need to do that. Although I could certainly make a claim as to why that's perhaps not the greatest use of human time in 2023. 
And I would also say that generally speaking, just like the student ownership piece, there is a dangerous road to go down with relevance. I don't think we want to create a world where everyone expects every single thing they do to be like automatically fun and relevant all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think you get a really bad learning experience when the thing that you're learning about doesn't feel relevant to you and the skills you're acquiring also doesn't feel relevant. Mm -hmm. And that's what we address. The idea that I have to learn about parallelograms and I don't care about parallelograms is a reality of life. The idea that I have to learn about parallelograms and I got to do it in a way that no adult is doing and I'm not actually building any skill sets that feel useful to me when I want to go become a firefighter or when I want to go become a poet, that feels highly problematic. And mm. I was very flustered by that when I taught traditionally. But when I taught in a new methodology of teaching, when students would say, Mr. Farah, I don't care about quadratics. I'd say, cool, I don't even care about quadratics myself. But what I can tell you is that you're about to leave this community in six months, a year, two years, three years, when you go off to the real world. And what you should care about is tackling complex tasks and mm -hmm. being able to lean on yourself and your peers. Mm -hmm. And that's how you need to treat the quadratic if you don't care about parabolic motion. Mm -hmm. And frequently you'll find that teachers are trying to convince students to care about parabolic motion mm -hmm. when what matters more is the skills that they're acquiring during that journey. And mm -hmm. I think that... There are two parts of the equation that need to be solved. We focus on the skill acquisition part and not so much on the content because the content one's tricky. Like there's a lot to be done there. Yeah. A lot to be done there. Trust me. Like trying to explain why parallel lines cut by a transversal actually has any value in the real world was very difficult and I failed many times. But at the same time, you're never going to create a world where every student goes into class and goes, oh, this feels so relevant to me. That's unrealistic, right? There's right. just too diverse a set of skills we're trying to teach kids. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting if you do connect it to some of the more metacognitive components of learning, which metacognitive is a big word and it's not something students necessarily recognize when you say it. But if you think about it, the confidence, the self-efficacy, the problem solving ability that comes from being able to tackle new, different, complex problems, that's really what it's all about. Our listeners might want to hear more from you, Kareem, in terms of how you've charted your own path, because you seem like you've both been upfront and transparent about how it's hard and how there are challenges and there's burnout, things you had to face individually, but somehow you've been able to navigate to where you are. Any advice, any suggestions, recommendations to folks out there in education, whether they're a teacher or they're starting a company, they're trying to figure out how to really chart a career in education. What advice might you have for folks? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I mean, the first thing that I'd say is like, don't assume that the things that aren't going well for you or the things that are frustrating you in the system are a consequence of someone doing something wrong. What you most likely will find out is whether it's a principal, a superintendent, a nonprofit leader, a curriculum company, they're trying to solve really hard challenges too. You can feel like I am a victim of all these other people's mistakes when really you're participating in a fundamentally broken system and we're all trying to be solution providers in that process. Hmm. I think that framing allows you to then be solutions oriented and seek innovation. So I think that's the first thing. And, and I made that mistake early on. When I was a young teacher, I was like, my principal doesn't know what's going on in the state board. And then I was like, actually, what would I do if I was a principal? These folks are doing really challenging things. So that's the first thing I'd say. Hmm. The second thing I'd say is like, focus on solving a problem 
don't focus on creating a solution or organization that can scale first. Because mm. I frequently will talk to folks that are trying to be entrepreneurs and founders, and their obsession is not on this is a discrete problem and I want to understand it perfectly and then think about ways to solve it and pilot and iterate. Their focus is on how do I create something that reaches 10,000, 50,000, a million people. Yeah. And I think in K-12 education, that's the wrong place to start. Like my co-founder and I became obsessed with something very clear. We could not differentiate to a broad diversity of learning levels and social emotional needs in the four walls of our classroom. What action steps could we take to address that? So I always tell folks, become obsessed with the problem first and then start to iterate on solutions in front of you. Addressing scalability is something you can think about later in the game. And then finally, I cannot stress enough the importance of listening to your users. Hmm. So when I was building the model, it was all about talking to the students, like what is going well, what is not going well. And listening to your users doesn't mean responding and reacting and iterating every time. Some of your users have really useless things to say. And they're motivated by reasons that aren't purposeful. But you got to take in that feedback and be judicious about it and decide how to apply it. And then today, we're constantly listening to our teachers and our district leaders and our school leaders to understand, like, is your classroom experience better? And if you're a school leader and a district leader, is infusing our model within your community creating more challenges or less challenges so that we can constantly iterate? So those would be my initial pieces of advice. Yeah. And how about motivation? Because that's the other one, both for students and then also for teachers. You know, it's hard to continue to motivate yourself. And that's frequently where we do see the burnout kick in when you're not able to kind of muster that. How, how do you think about motivation and maybe inspiring a little bit of hope and, you know, avoiding despair, although yeah. maybe allowing for it at the same time? Well, I mean, I think the reason why our teachers say they feel more hopeful about the profession is because they have a vision and a pathway for what success can look like. Yeah. I think we feel hopeless and we feel frustrated and we feel exhausted no matter what we do when we see no pathway for change, hmm. when we see no pathway for success. And my biggest piece of advice for folks who are experiencing that is if you are experiencing that and you're not trying something new, you're in trouble hmm. because if you're feeling hopeless it's usually because there is a pattern that's repeating itself consistently day in and day out. And if you're not seeking to break those constraints in any way, shape or form, mm. then you're on a pathway to sustained hopelessness, right? So when educators will frequently come and, and express resistance to wanting to try our model, I'll say, look, like no pressure to do this, but just know that if you're feeling frustrated and you're feeling like you can't meet students' needs effectively and you're burning out and your plan is to just keep doing what you did last year and hope that a three yoga classes a week and like one less planning period is going to get you out of this. It's not right. You've got to push the barriers. And for the leaders out there, do not punish people for pushing barriers. Mm. Create the space for folks to try new things. It may lead to crappier outcomes in three months, but then better outcomes in nine months. But if you cut it short in those three months, you are eliminating the capacity for people to try new things and find that pathway to hopefulness. And you're potentially just eradicating a good idea that just hasn't been optimized yet. I'm talking to Kareem Farah, who's the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project, modernclassrooms.org. Kareem, we've talked a lot about education. I always like to get thought leaders, innovators who think about education to share where they get inspiration outside of education. What else are you noticing in the world around us? Where do you look to find new ideas? What's capturing your imagination these days? Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, I'm sort of captivated by the way that we are interacting with technology more broadly. 
I'm captivated by how we think about humans' attention span. Like, I think we wake up every single day and it's really interesting because it's hard to kind of remember how we interacted with like media and technology and resources 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I can promise you it looks nothing like it. My wife the other day asked me, like, I like TikTok. People think I'm like silly for liking TikTok. And I'm like, I'm not silly for liking TikTok. You actually just haven't watched TikTok enough because TikTok is incredible at curating a perfect set of resources for me to engage in. Mm. So I was actually sitting on the couch with my wife and my wife was watching a show. And she's like, why are you watching TikTok instead of watching the show? And I was like, because the show's worse at feeding me content that's compelling. Mm. And I think that's really interesting. Like this idea that I'm digesting bite-sized information constantly that caters to my joys, curiosities, and interests, I also understand that that's super dangerous, Mm -hmm. that technology is feeding me with an algorithm and can move me in directions and preferences. And I think we have to be cognizant of that, not just broadly as adults, but then as for students and kids. Like, I think we're hitting a frontier that's really interesting, where if we paint it all as evil, that's silly. Like, TikTok is cool. It does amazing things. It taught me how to cook. I think I'm more informed about the news because of TikTok. Simultaneously, it's addictive. It's captured my attention in ways that are probably unproductive. It's probably spread misinformation for me at times that I need to debunk in a conversation that I didn't realize, right? So how we balance that and how that impacts not just education, but our broader intake of information, I think is really, really interesting. And I think we need to figure out how to harness the positive things and be very careful about the dangers. That's fascinating. Yeah, it does speak to a lot of the interest in digital literacy and, you know, just media literacy as these new formats emerge, where frequently, you know, it goes back to the old saw about, you know, needing your eight-year-old to reprogram your VCR. But lots of times you do need to look to the younger generations and then also not over-ascribe to being old school to a fault, where if you've never really played with the stuff, it's hard to really have an opinion or, or be part of a conversation. I cannot agree more. And one of the things that I think makes me most excited, but also most nervous about the kind of rapid acceleration of technology is I, maybe I'm wrong on this. I argued with my brothers about it for about four hours the other day, but it is clear to me that we understand less about the things that we engage with every single day. Like mm. I understand substantially less how Twitter, TikTok, my computer, the internet, AI mm. works yeah. than I think my dad did when he bought his first car. Yeah, I think he had a broad understanding of how an engine worked and how a car drove, and that was disruptive technology. Today, it's like we're just like in the technology and we have no idea how it's working. Mm. And I think that's it's it's freaky, right? Because what that does is it creates the risk that we are putting ourselves in positions and situations to be manipulated and or putting ourselves in, in some sort of a danger that's that we have no no idea about. So part of the reason why I think it's important for us to really engage in the things that are going viral, a TikTok or something else is like immerse yourself in it and then go try to understand what it's all about hmm. because it's capturing people's attention for a reason. And usually that reason is got merit right. um, and you're going to want to understand it before it goes away over your head and you're kind of out of luck and trying to get back into it. Right. Right. I mean, it's also, can I actually engage with this thing critically while also engaging in it authentically as an end user? And I think the answer typically is yes, but it requires a lot more of the durable skills and almost like a different type of training, a different model. Maybe, you know, it's the type of thing that I I imagine 
could be flowed through the modern classrooms program, which is right. nice in that you are somewhat curriculum agnostic, if I understand correctly. Completely, completely. And I think part of what you're talking about is metacognition, right? It's like mm -hmm. use the tool, but then spend some time thinking about how you use the tool yeah. and like what that tool did to you. And I think that that's a really important part of any quote unquote learning experience, particularly when you're engaging with some of these new tools. It's just like pausing and asking the question. It may have solved something for you in the short term, but did it have some sort of negative externalities that we haven't digested yet? It's a really important skill. And with the speed things are moving now, I don't think people are being metacognitive enough at times. Yeah. Yeah. I really can see the the t-shirts get more metacognitive. Right? Let's right. let's let's see how that goes. But uh it's been amazing having you on the show, Kareem. If folks are interested in what you have going on, we mentioned the website. Any other suggestions or ideas for folks if they want to learn more about the Modern Classrooms Project? Yeah, totally. I mean, all of our social handlers are at Modern Classrooms Proj, P-R-O-J. So we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're now on TikTok. You can find any of my thought leadership mostly on LinkedIn, but I'm also on Twitter. Kareem Farah, and then our website. And then if you're actually a teacher or if you're just interested in really digesting the model, we're a nonprofit. None of our resources are behind a paywall. So our free course mm. is an amazing place to go if you're like, I actually want to learn the model. And that's learn.modernclassrooms.org. You just make an account and that's it. Like it is a self-guided free course for you to learn everything you need to know about the model. That's great. We'll include links to all of that on the show page for the episode. As we're wrapping up here, Kareem, folks are about to head back to the rest of their lives. Any closing remarks, any final thoughts as we wrap up here? Yeah, just be patient, be curious, be patient and be curious. And more than anything, I think everyone really needs to be thinking hard about how we can create conditions for teachers to be successful. I don't care what industry you're in. There is a crisis that is happening live, and that is that teachers are not equipped with the right resources, tools, instructional methodologies to be successful. And if we don't address that issue in the near term, I think we're going to have a, a much larger crisis. So if you're not a teacher out there, think about teachers and like just pay some close attention to that before it's too late. And if you're a teacher out there, I just can't say thank you enough for the work that you do and continue to innovate, continue to explore ways to make the job sustainable and to meet students' needs more effectively. Amazing stuff here with Kareem Farah, the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project, modernclassrooms.org. Kareem, thanks so much for joining me on today's episode. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed this as much as I did. If you did, please subscribe, write a review, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.